Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org. Verse 12, then he said to me, fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. And I have come because of your words. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days. But Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the king of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for the days yet to come. When he had spoken to me according to these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of man touched my lips. Then I opened my mouth and spoke, and I said to him who stood before me, O my Lord, by reason of the vision Pains have come upon me, and I retain no strength. How can my Lord's servant talk with my Lord? For now no strength remains in me, and no breath is left in me. Again, one having the appearance of a man touched me and strengthened me, and he said to me, O man greatly beloved, fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. And as he spoke to me, I was strengthened and said, Let my Lord speak, for you have strengthened me. Then he said, Do you know why I have come to you? But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael, your prince. So we're in the middle of Daniel's fourth and final vision. It's the longest vision that he has. It occupies chapter 10 through 12, actually verse to verse 4 of chapter 12 to be exact. And we are dealing again with heavenly creatures here. And it reveals, this angel came to reveal to Daniel the future of his people. Chapter 9 was about that. The 70 weeks had to do with Israel's future. And again, it's here in chapter 10 through 12. Only a completely different information about their future is given to us here. But what we're going to spend a little time on in here is the further insight that we gain into the spirit world from the verses that we just read. What is going on behind the veil? 
You know what I mean, most of you, when I say that. There's a veil that shields our physical vision of the spirit world. We don't see it, but it's happening all around us all the time. We would not know any of this unless the Word of God told us. Of course, things have happened to people that uh, you can't explain it any other way than there was some entity, some personality that cannot be understood in a physical, materialistic way that intervened, that did something in somebody's life. And so there's indications of angels and demons and all of that from that. But the Bible really gives us the information we need to know in order to understand it and appreciate it more. So that's where I'm going in this sermon, but I want you to see, first of all, the purpose of the angel's visit, verses 12 to 14, why he came to Daniel. Remember, the, what we considered last week was the impact of the, the, the appearance of this angel that's described in the previous verses. This apparently was a full-on vision of what angels look like, the one that Daniel saw. It was overwhelming to him. It knocked him on his face. He went unconscious. He had quite an experience, just the encounter of this angel. But the angel was not mean. The angel wasn't in any way uh, there to harm him. This was his friend. This was a messenger that came from God the moment... Daniel began to pray. He went into a three-week fasting and mourning. And this angel was dispatched by God to answer Daniel's prayer. So he is entering into this conversation with him after he strengthens Daniel and picks him up. Daniel stood trembling, and then he said, he tells Daniel, fear not. Do you know that that is the most often quoted command in the Bible? Fear not. That appears more times in the Bible than any other command, even the command to love God. Fear not. And the reason is because the plight of man's condition in this world has put us in a place that has invited many, many fears into our life. And this is something that we need to hear frequently, to not fear. The Lord Jesus Christ told the apostles, don't fear those that can kill your body and can do no more than that. That's the ultimate fear, is to be killed by somebody. But Jesus said, don't even fear that, but rather fear him who can cast both body and soul into hell. In other words, make the fear of God your ultimate fear and dread in this life. But we especially need the command not to fear. Daniel's told this. Notice what he goes on to tell him. Fear not, Daniel, for from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before God three weeks ago. 
I came because of your words. So as soon as Daniel started to pray, this angel was dispatched from heaven to come and answer Daniel's prayer. But it took him three weeks to get there. Huh. Very strange thing is coming out here in this text. I have come because of your words. Notice what he says, verse 13. The prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me. For how long? 21 days, three weeks. Now this prince of the kingdom of Persia is not the king of Persia. He's not talking about the earthly monarch that was ruling Persia at this time. This is designating an evil spirit on the other side that stands in opposition to God's angels. And he withstood this angel, resisting him, contending with him, and delayed his coming in answer to Daniel's prayer for three weeks. Notice that this this other angel, another prince in Daniel, and by the way, in Jewish literature, the Qumrad, the Qumrad literature in particular, they use this very word prince to refer to angels that are of a high ranking. And that's what it means here. This is a high-ranking angel who apparently has some jurisdiction, some influence over not a person in particular, but it would seem over Persia. And whoever's ruling Persia, he influences that person in particular, probably the leadership, the rulers, those that are over others in the kingdom. So it's an amazing insight that's given to us here. Recently, Juan brought a sermon on Ephesians 6. Going back to that passage, the Apostle Paul tells us in Ephesians 6.12, he says, we don't wrestle. Our, the, the Christian is not in a wrestling match with physical opponents. We're not engaged in that way. Shouldn't be. That should not be where our attention lies. Rather, he says, that our opponents, those that we wrestle against, they're not against flesh and blood, but against, and he's got a description of, and there's two ways to look at this verse. I want to mention both of them because it's an interesting way to view it either way. He says, you, do, you are wrestling is against rulers, authorities, world rulers of this darkness, and spiritual evil in the heavenly realms. Now that could be referring to different levels within Satan's kingdom. He might be giving us the hierarchy 
of the kingdom of darkness. Certainly the kingdom of darkness is sophisticated and organized by the devil. Those angels that followed him in the rebellion against God that are his army. There must be some order to it. They're just not, I don't believe it's random how they attack. There's some organization to it. There's a mastermind behind what they do. And Paul may be defining those different uh, levels, those rankings. That's one way to look at Ephesians 6.12. Another way to look at it is that these are, this is a, a fourfold view of the entire demonic host. Looking at the whole of all the fallen angels, this is looking at this group from four different angles. This is an interesting way to, to view it. Um, they're rulers. The first thing Paul says. That, that would indicate that every demon has a domain, a territory, as it were. A specific area of rule. Um, there are also authorities. Not only are they rulers, but they're authorities. They have power in, in this particular domain to carry out their evil deeds. But the third one calls them world rulers of this darkness. World rulers is one word in the original. It's a, it's a compound word of ruler and world. World rulers. It's an interesting thought, meaning that this they're global in their influence. They're just not given to one location. Not just Israel is to contend with this, but God's people all over the face of the earth. They are world rulers. And then he adds, finally, that they are uh, spiritual forces, spiritual evil. And then he says, in the heavenly realm. Now that phrase, in the heavenlies, in Ephesians, Paul mentions that phrase five times. It's in chapter 1. He has blessed us with all spiritual blessings in Christ in the heavenly places. Chapter 2, he mentions it again. Chapter 3, but when he comes over to the fifth chapter, sixth chapter, and talking about spiritual warfare, he even says of the demons, Satan's organized kingdom of darkness, also has something to do with the heavenly realm. What is that? Well, the Bible actually gives us further insight. The book of Job, remember in the, the opening chapter of the book of Job, what it says? The day came when the sons of God came before 
the Lord, it says, and with them Satan also appeared before God. And then we have that discussion. The Lord said to Satan, have you seen my servant Job? And so on. And twice we encounter this. So Satan had access to the presence of God. The heavenly realm. Book of Revelation, chapter 12, tells us the day is coming when he's going to be thrown out of heaven. It describes uh, the fight between Michael and his angels and the dragon and his angels, the devil. They're engaged in warfare. And it goes on to say that they were cast out of heaven. They, meaning Satan and his angels. But until that day happens, they seem to still be in the heavenly realm, having access to God. What are they doing? Well, we know Satan accuses the church before God. That's one of the things he does. He accuses God's people. And he accuses your conscience along with it. So coming back to the text, we're thinking about a prince, a leader, a commander of the Persian Empire. We're thinking of at least uh, a, a, some high-ranking angel that Satan has set up over the kingdom of Persia to influence that government, to influence that kingdom. Namely, against God's people. This is how it works. And this angel, this is a, what Paul calls one of the elect angels, this angel that's in dialogue with Daniel. He's in conflict with this evil angel of Persia. Now he adds to this. And one of the chief princes, Michael, one of the chief princes. Notice he doesn't say just prince. He's a chief prince. You know, what is that? This is the first time Michael's mentioned, by the way, in the Bible. And we're told in the New Testament he is an archangel. Very high-ranking angel. And apparently there's more than one archangel. One of the chief princes. Gabriel is probably another archangel. In the Jewish book known as First Enoch, there are seven archangels mentioned. Enoch is quoted by Jude, by the way. He quoted from that. So it has substance, even though it's not in the Bible. Let me give you the names of those other archangels besides Michael. Michael, the name Michael means, who is like God? Great question. None is like God. He stands alone in his glorious essence and character. 
Here's the name of these other archangels, for those that are interested. Uriel. They all end in E-L, by the way. Gabriel, Michael, E-L is God in Hebrew. So all these names are saying something about Yahweh, about Elohim, or El. Uriel, Raphael, Raguel, Remiel, and Sirachiel. So he says in verse 14, now, here's a stated purpose for coming to Daniel. I have come to make you understand what is to happen to your people. Notice, in the latter days. For the vision is for days yet to come. Now, what we're going to see when we get into chapter 11 and chapter 12, that a lot of it has to do with the few centuries after Daniel, from the 4th century to the 2nd century, a big portion of the Revelation, and the, but extends into actually the end of time. So now notice the impact of this again on Daniel, how the revelation impacted him. Big chunk of this passage, verses 15 to 19. Daniel becomes mute. He, he can't talk. <laughs> when he had spoken to me these words, I turned my face toward the ground and was mute. And behold, one in the likeness of the children of men. Is this another angel or is this the same angel who becomes like a human in appearance so as not to add to the devastation of Daniel. It could be another angel comes, but he is appearing as a man here. He touched Daniel's lips. This is the second touch that Daniel receives in this. Remember last week I spent time on the idea how the angels minister to God's people. This is a beautiful truth of the New Testament. They are ministering spirits sent forth to those who are going to be the heirs of salvation. The angels minister to God's people. That seems to be their number one task besides worshiping God. So here, this other being, same being, different being, as a man touched his lips, Daniel opened his mouth and spoke. And he goes on to say, how can I speak to my Lord? I have no strength. I have no breath left in me. In other words, Daniel is devastated by all of this. And he's, he's an old man, so it probably hit him harder than it would, would have if he'd been a younger person. Daniel is touched again, verse 18. 
He touched me and strengthened me. So three times in Daniel 10, he's touched by an angel. And for the third time, he's said to be, old man, greatly beloved. Like I said last time, wouldn't you like to hear that word from an angel? To have that actually said into your hearing. Boy, if you had any doubt about assurance, that would certainly kind of end the problem. If you had an angel tell you that you were loved by God, because that's what he's being told. Not just loved, but greatly beloved. He's the apple of God's eye. God delighted in Daniel, his servant. But you know, this is the Old Testament. And the work of the Holy Spirit in those days was very different than what the New Testament Christian enjoys. We don't read that the Holy Spirit indwelt Daniel and ministered in any sort of fashion in his life, except in revealing dreams and visions to him. But think of the work of the Spirit in our life. The New Testament Christian has the Holy Spirit, who Paul says in Romans 8, is a, the, Paul says, God has not given us a spirit of fear, but he's given us the spirit of adoption. That's a, that's, he's speaking of the Holy Spirit of God is the spirit of adoption. In other words, he gives those that he possesses and indwells a sense of their adoption, that they belong to God, that they're God's children. This is why the very next verse says, for he bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. What prompts you to call on God as your father? It just spontaneously should, when we pray, it should spontaneously be, oh, father, father. Where does that come from? That's the Holy Spirit. That's the Holy Spirit speaking through you in prayer. So when it comes down to it, we actually do have something more wonderful than what Daniel experienced. He might forget what the angel said to him a year or two later. But the Christian has the continual indwelling Holy Spirit to bear witness with his spirit that he belongs to God, that he's loved by God. So, let's rejoice in the greater promises and blessings that we have on this side of the cross, on this side of the coming of the Holy Spirit. Now, he tells Daniel... Fear not. Here it is again, but notice how it's put. Fear not, peace be with you, be strong and of good courage. It's it's very similar to what God said to Joshua. Similar language, be strong and courageous. Daniel needed that word. Now, verses 20 and 21, the final words of the angel. Then he said, do you know why I have come to you? 
Now, it's a rhetorical question because he answered it back in verse 14. He explained to Daniel why he came, to give him understanding of Israel's future, give him revelation. But he asked him, do you know why I came? Yes, I do. I understand it now. You came to give me revelation of the future, my people's future. Now notice what he says. But now I will return to fight against the prince of Persia. (laughs) So he's going to leave Daniel and he's going to go back and enter into some mysterious conflict with this evil spirit that has some jurisdiction and influence over the kingdom of Persia. What a thought. And when he's done with that conflict, he's going to deal with the prince of Greece. Another one, another world ruler in the domain of darkness. Well, this angel has his work cut out for him in terms of battling darkness. I mean, there's just the veil, in my view, is just being lifted a little bit here. Given a little insight. Not full on, we don't know. I mean, this is the very little, but it's enough to give us an appreciation. There's something going on behind the scenes, behind the veil, that's mysterious, it's awesome. We're not ready for it yet, to see it. Good thing we don't see it. One angel knocked Daniel unconscious. But he's telling him all of this. Verse 21. Also notice, uh, before we move on, notice the order here. First Persia, then Greece. You remember the four world empires? Going back to the early chapters of Daniel. What were they? Babylon, the Medes and the Persian Empire, then Greece, then Rome. We have confirmation again after having confirmation back in chapter 8 of the vision of the ram and the goat. And we're told in chapter 8 this is the king of Persia and the king of Greece. So here's the sequence of the world powers, again revealed in the book of Daniel. Persian, the Persian Medo Empire, and then the Grecian Empire of Alexander the Great followed. Verse 21, but I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. Now what is the book of truth? Well, clearly there's a metaphor There's no physical book that's being referred to. It's the book of truth, but it's a beautiful metaphor for God's secret will. Or God's predetermined plan. A plan that is fixed because it's written in the book. It's irrevocable. You can't change it. You can't reverse it. It's God's eternal plan and purpose, and it's in a book. 
Now, the Bible uses the metaphor of a book for God's plan in other places, and I thought it would be good to just mention them so you can piece this together. In Psalm 139, David is amazed with God's omniscience and his his omnipotence. His knowing everything, and not his omnipotence, his omniscience and his omnipresence. God knows everything and he's everywhere at the same time. And the whole psalm is about that. And while he's discussing that and marveling at God's knowledge of everything, he, goes, he, he begins to talk about his formation in the womb of his mother. He goes clear back to when he was conceived and he grew in his mother's womb. And he describes that as everything was written in God's book that pertained to his development day by day in the womb. That it was all there in God's plan. And he speaks of it as a daily thing. That every day something was growing and being added to his development. Ten weeks, ten toes, ten weeks heartbeat. That's a, the, in the book it was written. So God has it all planned, our development in his book of truth, his secret will. Now, nobody knows what's in the secret will unless he reveals the contents of the book. The angel is going to reveal some of the contents of the book to Daniel. That is, the future of Israel. If he didn't reveal it, no one would know any of this is going to happen in history. God is the perfect fortune teller. He knows the future. He planned the future. He can tell us the details of it before it happens. In Luke chapter 10, when the apostles came back from their ministry and were amazed that the demons were subject to them, Jesus said, don't rejoice that the demons are subject to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Huh. What do you mean, written in heaven? What does that mean? Well, you go to the last book of the Bible, and we have it really spelled out for us, that there's a book, it's called the Lamb's Book of Life. And it is the roster of God's elect. Those that God intends to save, their names were written in the book. So there's another aspect of the book of truth, another aspect of God's secret will, who he's going to save. And it's as though he has everyone's name written in a book. Or in Revelation 20, the, the, the seriousness of the great white throne judgment, it says, And whosoever was not found written in the book of life was cast into the lake of fire. But also in the book of Revelation, we have that scroll in chapter 5. 
Remember the scroll? Written on both sides. A lot of content to it. But a scroll, it's rolled up. You can't, can't read it, can't read the contents until it's, it's opened up. Not only is it rolled up, to, but it has seven seals, not just one seal, seven, holding it all together. This is a scroll of God's purpose and plan, particularly the plan for earth and the future. And what's in, in, in the scroll It's the contents of the book of Revelation. Because those seven seals lead to the seven vials and the seven outpourings of God's judgment. I'm forgetting that there's a third one in there. Seals, vials, and what is it, Jim? What's the third thing? Anyhow, one leads to the other. It's the unfolding of the rest of the book of Revelation from chapter 5 on. The contents of that scroll. We would not know what's in that scroll unless it was opened to John. Who opened the seal? Who peeled the seals off of the scroll? The Lamb did. The Lord Jesus Christ. The one who triumphed over death and hell in his death. So there's many references in the Bible to the secret will of God being in a book. That's what I wanted to show you. And I I take it that that's what he's referring here as well, because it is this book of truth that contains the information to be revealed in chapter 11 of Israel's future history. Now, conclude, notice what it says at the end. There is none who contends by my side against these... The king of Persia, the king of Greece, except Michael. So Michael was assisting this unnamed angel in his conflict. This is why he got through and was able to get to Daniel. After three weeks, Michael came and helped him. And notice he says, Michael is your prince. Catch, wow, I love that. Israel has Michael on their side. He's a holy angel, a good angel. Persia and Greece, they're both run by a prince of darkness of some kind. Now, what can we say... Uh, wrapping this up. There's a couple of things here. There are invisible evil agents behind earthly leaders and rulers. This, This is clear. When we hear about what governments in the past did, to me, this is the key to understanding Certain people that have come into history who have done the worst, most horrific things imaginable to their fellow human being. What inspired that? Where'd they get these ideas? Who's manipulating? Who is influencing? These are high-ranking, 
rulers of the darkness of this world and they're influencing human government. They are working in the minds of men who are in places of power and leadership. But here's now here's an interesting thing about prayer. Remember in chapter 9, when we went through the first part of chapter 9 and Daniel's prayer, it's beautiful long prayer, and the angel Gabriel comes and answers with the 70 weeks. Gabriel told Daniel that the moment he started to pray, Gabriel came right away. While Daniel was in prayer, Gabriel came. Now that's one way that it happens when we pray. There is instantaneous answers to prayer. Happens as fast as lightning. That's chapter 9 tells us that. While Daniel was still speaking, he says, Gabriel came in answer to prayer. But when you come to chapter 10, oh, you've got a different take on it now, on prayer and answer to prayer. Here's a case, and we would not know this unless it was revealed in the Bible. I wouldn't be able to figure this out, what's going on behind the scenes. But here in chapter 10, it's revealed that the, an answer to prayer may be delayed by some unknown cause that we're just totally oblivious to. We have no idea why there's a delay. And it has nothing to do with us. We're not the reason for the delay. In other words, unanswered prayer is not necessarily to be interpreted as God is saying no or he's ignoring us. The fact that we don't have an, an immediate answer is not necessarily a no. Something else might be going on there that we're not aware of. But Daniel's chapter here tells us that there could be something else, another reason for a delay. So that's encouraging to us. We don't have... Um, you know, when heaven seems to be silent, it's not necessarily a no to us. We can't absolutely say that. God might be telling us indirectly to wait. This isn't the time to answer our prayer. How many of you have had unanswered prayer? Everybody. <laughs> we all have when we expected it and no answer heaven was silent but <clears throat> there could be another reason for that so that's Daniel chapter 10 it's got some insight for us concerning the spirit world that's worth knowing before we get into chapter 11 I would ask for your prayers as I go into chapter 11 this is this Actually, it's harder 
than Daniel's 70 weeks, chapter 11 in some ways, because it's a lot of history. I'm, I'm not a historian, and I don't think it would be of value to you to go into detail. So I need guidance as to how to present this so it's edifying, we get the point, and we can move into chapter 12 and wrap this study up in the next couple of weeks. Amen. Thank you for joining us and listening to this message from the Ministry of Grace Providence Church in Cerritos, California. For more information, visit our website at www.graceprovidencechurch.org.